Thanks for downloading this podcast from The Rock of York. We hope it inspires you. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, at The Rock of York, or search for The Rock of York on Facebook. And of course, there's the website at www.rockofyork.co.uk. But you probably already knew that. Here's something you might not know. going to stretch your brains a little bit tonight to learn something. Um, some could ask the question, why do we have to bother with, with history? But um, history shaped our today. So um, there is a, some debt that we hold to history, which is to understand how we reach today, uh, but also evaluate our conclusions today in light of that, because history is not always right. Um, History is simply the vehicle that delivers us to today. So, um, you know, let's say, for example, you um, you were starting a new job, and all they said, just turn up, and then nobody told you the essential parts of the job. Um, And then you got fired the following week because you're not doing the job. You wouldn't think it was fair to be fired, because you would like to be told what was necessary, or what was necessary is history. So it's not the whole thing, but but history is necessary to help us to understand some things that we have to essentially consider, but it's not always the best indicator of where we should go, only the best indicator of where we've been. So it it can become the burden of the past, it can become the thing that stops us moving forward. Um... So anyway, we, we as followers of Jesus, um, by default, um, would be included in uh, a group of people called Christian, okay? We've talked about that. Um, and so we have 2,000 years of history and how, how the Christian message got to today and um, um, it's not that straightforward, and it's very diverse, and there are some aspects of it that are extremely concerning. Now, the problem is some people would say, well, let's just regularize everything. Why? Because we don't want anybody to have to think for themselves. We don't want anybody to have any crisis of belief, when actually that's the entire opposite to what Jesus did. You know, Jesus did want people to have to think for themselves and he did want to create a crisis of belief, hopefully so that a real faith could emerge that is based on the Father in heaven and the revelation of who he is rather than just on organizational, institutional expressions of Christianity. So, so some of what's said tonight will challenge that. Um, it's going to be tough. I mean, help Chris because uh, she's, she's studied endless hours uh, on these subjects, and I, I appreciate that, and I honour her for it. Put a lot, a lot of work in. <clears throat> we talked this morning just on a few aspects of that for longer than this meeting will last. So, the problem becomes: how do you, how do you restrict that down to a point also where some of you are not as scholastic, some of you are not as interested in the details. So we don't want to overload you, you know, scholastically, but. Um, well, I, I did want to start out to say this stuff is important, okay? And um, it, it is a foundation for some of the things that we need to say that spring out of that about how our own beliefs have emerged 
and um, uh, our own conclusions about, about the process of Christianity and also the forward momentum um, that is there. So, uh, so, Father, we just give us wisdom, help us to have ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to understand, and, uh, and it's all yours. Okay, so like Anne said, I have done a hanky up my sleeve, I'm all right. Um, a lot of study on this, and uh, I was really excited about it at the beginning, about a week ago. And then by this afternoon, I was so scrambled, I didn't clue where I was, and I'm thinking, oh, heck, this is unbelievable. And yet I still feel that there's a great benefit in doing this, because I don't know, um, you might attend this church, you know, this community, for want of a better word, uh, for all sorts of reasons, and you might haven't understood that each group really holds to a theory of what Christ did. So his work on the cross, um, the reason why he died, um, there is a theory behind it. Now, I have to say that the theory that I was brought up with um, is very much not what I hold today. Now, that's a bit odd to say that because you think, well, surely if it was that fantastic, um, how come you haven't managed to, you know, to hang with it? Uh, well, it's because we have asked questions, haven't we? And uh, we did go through a time, uh, especially in my own upbringing, when questions weren't allowed to be asked. Therefore, you, you embraced what you were told and that was it. Even though something inside you was going, yeah, but what about this and what about that? You just weren't allowed to ask it, so you, you went on. So um, what, we're really, what we're going to talk about tonight are the various, what's called atonement theories, um, which basically have uh, been around since uh, the time of Jesus. Now, what's very interesting about it all is that as, as you go online and you, you do some research, you never find an atonement theory that was written by the disciples you don't find an atonement theory that was written by Paul, even though you could say in maybe Romans and some of the books of the Bible, he writes down his ideas about what Christ accomplished. I mean, Romans is full of it, isn't it, of what he believed Christ accomplished. But if you go online, it doesn't say this is Paul's atonement theory. It's not even recognized as a theory. But there are many called the church fathers who are given the right to have an atonement theory, but they came about 130 years after the time of Jesus, which immediately I think to myself, hang on a minute, a church father, how can a church father be somebody who basically was writing about what they believed Jesus had done so long after the event? Now, I know that we can have uh, prophetic insight and, um, let me just take the lid off that for me, please, I'm really thirsty. I'm so nervous. I can't tell you how nervous I am. You sound like Riley. Settle down, settle down. Um, it does, doesn't it seem interesting to you that these theories would come such a long time after? So if you want to put up a... The, <clears throat> we'll keep this going quite quickly and then Anthe will have time to talk. Don't go too quick. Well, all right, Okay. Put your hands up if you're interested. Oh, that's okay. So basically, I mean, 
Some of the time you'll be looking for a, a conclusive formula. Well, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to give you one of them. Although I think Anth will afterwards. Because I do believe that as a church, once you've un- understood the new covenant, you can actually formulate an atonement theory based on the new covenant, which is actually very interesting. And we've never actually put that in writing. We haven't done that as a church. But I think actually we're getting to the place where we can, which is, which is wonderful. Um, But before I go go onto the screen, sorry, let me just say one more thing. Uh, A little while ago, I said, I believe that our view of God actually is is so important because it will determine the sort of people we are. Now, that's why I think that what we're doing tonight is important. Because every atonement theory actually gives out its understanding of uh, of who God is, what he was doing, what he was trying to achieve. And actually, some of them end up being quite horrible and very violent, very cruel. And if that is the view of God you have, it is what, uh, it's the trajectory with which you then live your life. Now I can go back and say categorically that um, it's not on this page, it's on the next one, which we'll get there in a minute. I was brought up with the theory that's on this next page. The theory that was on the next page wasn't even established until the 1500s. Right? But that's the theory I was brought up with. It's called the Substitutional Penal Atonement, which was brought about after the Reformation, after Martin Luther, the film that you you saw last week. It came about through a man called John Calvin. And that's what the majority of the Western world still hold today. That's it. Right? Now that's on the next page. We start in here, though, and I'm sorry, I'm going to have to have another drink. This is where we start, because there's what is called the classic atonement theories, and there's what's called the Latin atonement theories, and these three here are what basically are the earliest. Uh, Now, you see Christus Victus. Now, this is interesting, because we sung a song um, at Halloween, and there was a line in it was, "You are Christus Victor, the ever whatever undefeated man." Right? And people were saying, "What's that? What's that?" And we were saying, "No, well, actually, that was a, a, a an atonement theory right back in the beginning, um, which basically was just about well, it, it's so obvious, Christ the Victor." He's done it, he's won it, whatever it was, we might not be able to put it down into a lot of detail, but he's Christ the victor, it's sorted, right? Do you get me? Very important, because that was quite early on. Now, it's divided into two. One is called the ransom theory, and the other is called the cosmic battle theory. So if I can just, um, it is like Star Wars, isn't it? Let's, um, uh, let's just find it, because they're all in different order on here, let's have a look. So, okay. Um, this, the ransom theory, was introduced by Oregon. Um, now, he's one of these founding fathers. Um, I haven't got the date when he was born, but it was, I think I've got it somewhere. It's 100, and, I think, 130, something like that. But anyway, this theory differs slightly from the next one. Um, in that Jesus liberates humanity. This is, we're talking about the purpose of Christ, what God did through Christ on the cross, why he died, what was the purpose, 
You, you get me? You, are you with me? Because I want to make sure you're with me. So basically, Jesus liberates humanity from the slavery to sin and Satan by giving his life as a ransom sacrifice. Victory over Satan. Now, some of you are saying, yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah, we get that. Yeah. Victory over Satan consists of swapping the life of the perfect Jesus for the imperfect us. Yeah, that makes sense, doesn't it? But who was the ransom paid to? Now, this is the question. It was actually in this ransom theory, it was paid to Satan, to the devil. Now, some of you are going to go, what? Never heard of that before. Do you like that? Is that a new piece of information? So it was paid to Satan. Um, This created some problems as there were those who found this abhorrent to think God owed the devil, who was a rebel himself, anything. The other problem was that if death was the ransom to free us from our sin, then God deceived Satan by raising Jesus from the dead. So basically it was a trick and God only pretended to pay the debt. Now you can see that sort of makes sense because if death is what was required and Jesus died but then didn't stay dead, we haven't got a full payment, have we? So that was what they held on to for a very long time at the beginning Although when I said the beginning, this is a hundred years after. It bothers me that because I do believe there should be a theory that stems right from the disciples, those who walked with Jesus, or even Paul, who was probably, is it 70 years after Jesus, whatever. So anyway, so you can understand why that analogy or metaphor might be used of ransom. Because if you think about it, in the day and age in which all this was going on, you first of all have the Jewish people who have got in their memory absolutely solidified is the bringing out of captivity of Egypt by the blood of the lamb, the the story that they had to put uh, sacrifice the lamb and put the blood over the doors that actually released them from the slavery of Pharaoh in Egypt. So you can see why that metaphor might sit well and they think, that's it, that's what's happened. Um, because the idea of, uh, you know, of, of, uh, of ransoming captives was a very common event during a very, well, it's a very warring society. There's a lot of war going on. There's a lot of um, uh, domination by, if you think about it, the Romans were dominating the Jews at the time and all they could think about was being set free from, from their, their captor. So the whole idea of ransom was, was incredibly important at that time. Um, now, what you might need to know, and I mean, this is just a little piece of information because I want to keep it going quickly. This idea that a ransom was paid to Satan is still held by many groups today. And you're not going to believe one of them. One of them is actually the word of faith movement. Now, if you think of people like Kenneth Copeland, um, Kenneth Hagen, and that group still hold on to this idea of the ransom theory, where the, um, the, the, the price that was paid, the ransom that was paid was by God to Satan in order that we might be set free. Now, that's that one. And that, w- that started back in about 130 AD, something like that. You can, you can go and check it. 
Although it's, it's, it's a bit weird because you can go on one site and they'll tell you one date and another site they'll tell you another date and it's all a bit... But it's about right. Okay. So, let's look at this next one. Christus Victor Cosmic Battle. The metaphor here is one of Christ being the leader of a cosmic battle in which he defeated Satan, thus freeing us from our captor by defeating him. Now here's the where it gets a bit weird. Jesus is killed, but the resurrection then, but only killed in the sense of he's killed in battle. That's the sort of metaphor. Um, but the resurrection then proved God victorious and identified God as the ruler of the universe. And we are liberated from the slavery and sickness of sin by God, God's grace breaking into our lives. This theory is rooted in the incarnation and how Christ said, so it's about his birth. So it is more to do with him not uh, dying in order to pay a ransom to somebody. There's no ransom being paid here at all. This is just, he, get, he, he is born into our, our, our world. He lives in our midst in order that he can uh, be part of it so that he can redeem it. So in this view, there's no payment made uh, to anybody but humanity is um, emancipated from slavery of sin and death. And that view actually is held by a lot of what they call, especially in the States, liberal Christians. Liberal Christians. Um, whereas I better really jump to where conservative Christians are on the next page. Is that okay if I just say that? They're coming. Um, now, what have we got next? All right. Moral influence, I've got a problem with this one, I'll tell you why, is because different people tell me different things. Some people tell me it was one of the classic early held theories, and then other people tell me it came after 1500s. They better make up their mind, hadn't they? Because, I mean, that's a big jump, isn't it? But really, the moral, um, um, let me just, I've got to find it because I've written it somewhere else. Okay, this is basically, um, intri- well, how can I put it? It's really what it says, moral influence, that really Jesus' death was of no importance really at all. Because it was just about the way he lived. He was with us in order to bring moral change, that there was going to be transformation because um, he was a catalyst of change. So his death was an inspiration, but it actually was not the goal. The goal was actually to bring um, just this catalyst of change. But basically, the final judgment would be based on one's conduct. So if we adopted his uh, moral teaching, because how, how it's put is that the, the Gospels tend to focus on Jesus's uh, attitude towards dealing with situations, how he, uh, all his parables, he's talking about situations and, and your responses and reactions to them. If we adopt that, we will then affect the same moral change in our society as Jesus did. So it was very much just a moral, moral influence. I've got something else somewhere that I put down about this. Um, where is it? The problems with these, though, obviously, are that you could say that, you know, and I mean, there's many people who have gone before, especially if we talk about these founding fathers, who say that human beings are incapable of moral change. 
And so if they're expected to save themselves by moral change, well, that's not going to happen. So that's, you know, one of the issues of that. Also, there's a lot of people who say with this um, moral influence theory is that basically it underestimates sin. Well, it doesn't just underestimate it. It doesn't even come into the picture. It's like there's no issue with that. You know, what, what is sin? Um, it also underestimates, like we've said, Christ's death is of particularly, it's inspirational, like I said, but it's of no importance. And there's also this, there's this uh, almost missing of the fact that God's attitude towards sin in people, and it sort of under, underestimates God, God's attitudes towards sin. Now, the thing is, that is still held very widely across the world, that that was the only reason why Jesus came. It was just to be a great moral influence. And you think, well, that's interesting. You know, there's a lot of people who hold that, that now. And that's the reason why when you do research on it, you find that it, it is in the, um, it, it rears up again after the Reformation in the 1500s because, uh, let me, let me, I've got it on here somewhere. Let me just find it. I've got loads of bits of paper if you can be kind to me and let me find them. Um, where is it here? Yeah, you see, the reason why this, this sort of reappeared, this idea back in after the Reformation, is because, again, when we get to the next page, you'll understand. It's, it's so difficult when you're jumping from one place to another, but there was another um, theory called the satisfaction theory that was introduced that basically um, made God seem to be very vengeful and very judgmental and um, instead of it was the payment to the devil, which the ransom theory had originally said, in this satisfaction theory, the payment was being paid to God. So what had happened was the, 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 the pendulum had been swung. Hang on a minute. The ransom theory is it's God paying the devil. Suddenly we've got Jesus paying God. And some people, like this guy called Abelard from the... 1100s or whatever, he decided that he couldn't hang with that. And you can understand he was saying, I don't like the thought of that. So he says this idea made God seem very vengeful and judgmental. So he saw the death of Jesus aimed not at God or the devil, but at sinful humankind. It was a loving act of God designed to get the attention of sinners and reveal the love of God for sinners while they were yet sinners. So its impact on the psychological or moral character of humankind identifies this as moral influence. Is this making sense? I hope so. Right, okay, so where are we now? We've done the ransom theory. Okay, now this recap, recapitulation theory. I think that at the minute this is the one I like the most. But after saying that, you know... Who knows? It might be missing bits out and what, I don't know. But it, this, this one is really very interesting because, um, again, this was about 130 AD. And what recapitulation, aren't these words horrible? Oh, all it means really is recreation or restoration. Now, any of you who are reading any of the books like by Rob Bell or Brian McLaren or any of that, that group, you can actually see that this is 
coming up a lot because it's all about what Christ did was to restore, was to recreate, was to actually make things right. And um, sometimes when you actually look at these atonement theories, this is the one that doesn't get much, um, uh, what do you call it, much press or attention. Um, But it was actually a a very early formed theory. And the scripture that it's based on is absolutely wonderful. Let me just say here that every one of these theories that I've mentioned, you will find scriptures to totally reinforce each one of them in the Bible. So I'm not saying anything that is not scriptural. It's just an emphasis. So once you decide, oh, this is it, you follow that. and You you know what it's like. If you buy a red car, how many red cars do you see? You see it, don't you? Because yours is red. And it's the same with once you have decided that that a particular theory is the right one, it tends to jump out at you. It tends to be reinforced because it's it's what you're looking for in a sense. So anyway, um, the scripture that this is about, and and I think this is great and and it really does speak to me, was this. God's purpose, sorry, Ephesians 1.10, it was this. God's purpose is in the fullness of time, to sum up all things in Christ. Now, recapitulation actually means to sum up. Isn't that lovely? To sum up. being. And I thought when I've been preaching just lately about, about the last word has not yet, be, yet been spoken, when it comes to hope, when it actually comes to this theory of the atonement um, of what Christ did, the last word actually has been spoken because what it's saying that through Christ, God is summing up, he's bringing it to uh, the last word. So when he said it was finished, it was summing it up. Uh, To sum up all things in Christ, the things in the heavens, the things upon the earth. And like I said, the Greek word for sum up is recapitulate in Latin. Oh, isn't that lovely? So to sum up. So that is God saying in Christ, I'm summing it all up. It's finished. Now, you might need a bit more detail about that, but you don't really. It's like, it's done. It's finished. Let me just uh, move on. In, in, in this view, Christ is seen as the new Adam who succeeds where Adam failed. Christ undoes the wrong that Adam did, and because of his union with humanity, leads humankind onto eternal life, including our moral change. So it's not something that we do, it's something that he does, that he imparts to us. However, the one important thing about this uh, theory is there's a great emphasis on our participation. It's not something that uh, we just decide, or, or should I say God decides he's done, but then we're just spectators and watching. It's the fact that the scripture that says, um, 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 blah, 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 Oh, I forgot it. That, that nevertheless, I live, but yet not I, but Christ that lives in me. Yeah, I am crucified with Christ. What? With Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Because the whole emphasis is not that just Christ died, but we all died because we were dying with. And because we died with it means that we also rise with his resurrection because this is a participation theory, not just something that happened by the Godhead. It's something that we're involved in. So through man's disobedience, the process of the evolution of the human race went wrong. And in the course of its wrongness could 
neither be halted nor reversed by any human means. But in Jesus Christ, the whole course of human evolution was perfectly carried out and realized in obedience to the purpose of God. So it's not that Jesus did, uh, just did it for us, but we died with him. When he died, we died. Because he lives, we live. And this is all about participation in the bigger story. So can you see how that is, you know, probably a bit more where we are, t- we are today. So have I covered all of them? I know I've gone quite quickly, but uh, that, is this interesting? Okay, thank you. If you want to just go to the next um, uh, slide, please. Just get a drink. Now we have, according to, you know, records, you have nothing going on then until the 11th century um, when a guy called Anselm of Canterbury, who he says wife was Gretel, Anselm Gretel. Oh, I've had that, yeah, all day. It's terrible, isn't it? Um, who made the next contribution to what was the understanding of the meaning of Christ's death on the cross. Now, I, again, I find that interesting that you have all this going on in the very early first, second, and third century, and then suddenly, in the, in the 11th century, you get something happening. Now, a lot of, of these theories, like I said with the one about the ransom theory, it's, it tended to resonate with the, with the social and political situation at the time. And you could say that it's very similar to what happened um, in the 11th century because what was going on there was that the, well, the, basically the, the, the Roman Catholic Church has really risen to a, in, in, to a great empire and in many ways is becoming the, the, the world's authority and so you've got Anselm of Canterbury, who sounds as though he was Church of England, but actually he wasn't. He, he, was, he was Catholic, who suddenly decides that the, the theory of the ransom theory, which we talked about at the beginning, was inadequate because he couldn't hack the fact that how can God, and I said this early on, how can God possibly be paying Satan for anything because he's a rebel and he hasn't got any just claims against human beings. So it just cannot be right. Now, we would say, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But like I said, there's a whole group out there who, who really still hold to the fact that the ransom that was paid was to Satan in order to set human beings free. So we've got this Anselm of Canterbury, um, you know, getting involved. So he came up with this, what's called the satisfaction theory. Um, Satisfaction means to make restitution. Now, all of these words that you're hearing, I know they're going to ring true with you because we know that they're all things that are about um, our understanding of the Christian faith. Words like restitution, to, to make amends, to put things right. it's great, but it's then the wider picture that starts to all get a little bit weird. Um, So the whole idea, yeah, we had to mend what was broken. One had to pay back what was taken. And it was here that it was introduced that that there was a debt, but it was not owned, uh, it wasn't owed to Satan, um, but it was 
owed to God. Now, why was it owed to God? It was owed to God because man's sin was so huge, there was absolutely no way that God's honor could be maintained. And this, I'll just give you a quote because it helps um, in the understanding of it. He, He said this, a sovereign may well be able to forgive an insult or injury in his private capacity, but because he is sovereign, he cannot if the state has been dishonored. Uh, this Anselm of Canterbury argued that the insult given to God is so great that only a perfect sacrifice could satisfy and that Jesus being both God and man was going to be God's sacrifice. So Jesus was the sacrifice paid to God himself, by himself, by Christ satisfying our debt of honour to God, we avoid punishment. So this is all about honour. Now, I find that a bit weird because, we, you know, again, once you've been brought into an understanding of the kindness of God, the love of God, the compassion of God, when we start talking about honour, you can really get the feeling that this is about authority and how, basically, if people aren't treated the way they felt they should be treated they get so unhappy that there becomes this debt that has to be paid. And I don't know, I mean, we've, we've watched the things like Luther last week and how once the, the, the Catholic Church felt that they were not being, um, uh, what's the word, uh, obeyed in what was going on, immediately there was a desire to clamp down on the people who were, it was a dishonouring and therefore this had to be stopped. So you see how there's that... That, that tie between dishonoring and, you know, the idea of God. This is why I said at the beginning that um, your view of God will very much affect how you are as a human being. So this guy is seeing that, hang on, it's, it's God, we've, we've not honored him. So we've got to, somehow, humanity has got to come up with the honor. And if he can't, if we can't, then a sacrifice has got to be given instead. So, This is where it gets interesting. Justice is one of God's characteristics. And affronts to that justice must be atoned for. This was the first time... uh, Sorry, this was... Oh, that what Christ did was brought into a legal framework. So we're talking about uh, really criminal justice now because it's brought it into a very different framework because it's about... um, Balancing injustice. So if you do that, you have to do this, you see. And that is the, the legal framework that it's brought into. Um, so basically, debts create a very imbal- imbalanced moral universe. God can't ignore it. Now you could say, well, why not? And it's because there is this um, belief that there is something actually above God that is actually stipulating what should be. Now, if you think about it, 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 the only way that there could be anything above God, that would be if he is, if he's, uh, how am I putting it? Sorry. Um, If he's a judge who is there to outwork the law, because the law is then above him. Like if you think about it in, in the terms of our situation, right? The judge 
does not make out judgments for himself. He's actually operating to a higher mechanism. Do you see that? So he's not saying, I'm, you know, I'm sending you off to jail for 12 months uh, because I think that's right or whatever. He's saying, I have to do this because the law says that this is what's required. Now, this is where this whole idea of satisfaction comes in because the, the law needs to be satisfied. And it's like there's this idea that there is something above God. Now, I find that really interesting how we ever came to that understanding. And, and what we, I read this a long time ago, and I'll read it to you again. Um, You know, you can put pieces of paper in and then you never find them, do you? Okay. Um, I'm just going to read a very little bit because this is what I was taught. I remember this so well, and and some of you might agree. Um, Basically, it's talking about how judges in, in our societies are accountable to mechanisms of the court. This is the only way... Oh, sorry. This is... Yeah, hang on. I'll just, I'll just have to read it. This is the only way modern conservative Christians can keep believing in both the loving God and a horrific hell. Because God is a decent judge stuck in a rigid, heartless system. And that's the thing. Well, that, that's how it is. And, and I remember asking my mum questions years ago. Oh, well, it, God doesn't want to send anybody to hell. But he has to. Why does he have to? Because he's just. Why? Well, because he has to fulfill the law that's above him. And you're thinking, no, if God is God, he can make up his mind to do whatever he wants. And that's the most incredible thing about the new covenant, which if I show up in a bit, I can talk to you about. It's the, it's the point where we recognize that the whole... Um, understanding of what God has done through Christ, it is his work, it is his desire, it's his choices, it's what he thinks should be. And whereas it goes, it cuts across so much everything that we as human beings even think is right, that's what he has chosen. If he says that I want to forgive, he can forgive. But then you've got people here saying, hang on, but you can't because that wouldn't be right. And you see, where it leads to, you see, is the fact that you then have to, and this is what was brought in, the whole idea of paying penance for your sin because there was big sins and there's little sins. So the penance had to be equal to the pleasure of the sin. So if the sin was great pleasure, then your penance was going to be pretty massive. If you didn't have much pleasure in it, which I don't think that's even a possibility, is it? I think everybody has at least a little bit of pleasure in, don't you think? Sin? Yes, I think so. Um, But you know what I mean? It would be equal. So the penance was equal to the pleasure. Now, here's the thing. Get this. The whole thing about indulgences, do you remember the film last week where uh, Luther was very upset because basically what was being said, you can pay yourself out. This idea comes from the fact that the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross was so above and beyond what was necessary to deal with people's humanity's sin that he actually created an incredible treasury full of wonderful, I suppose, look at it as being um, 
a treasury of coins or gold or something. But you see, every time that you did something wrong, you had to take out of that treasury. So the reason why that you paid penance was in order to put back into the treasury. Do you get it? That's why indulgences, it's the, it's the word. In, if, if you will be indulged, you will, you know, indulge, indulge upon somebody to treat me with respect. So I, that, that's the right thing. I've said that right, haven't I? So that's where indulgences came for. So anyway, um, hmm. so we get to the point where we have this theory that God has to be satisfied Jesus satisfies him, but then what comes in is all this idea of paying penance um, in order that to maintain the full thing that Christ has already done. So you don't have Christ being enough. It's not finished. It's just not finished at all. It has to be paid. So you get forgiveness or whatever, but you have to pay it back. So, and that was the satisfaction theory. And that is the root of Catholic penance, yeah. Oh, I'm glad you're smiling at me. Okay, the, the last one is this one. And, and, and I, like I said at the beginning, this is the one where you would probably not admit it, but this is the one really where we're, most of us are stuck unless we have a, a real revelation. And I do believe we've gone the journey for that revelation. But this is the, the, the most recent, and it's the one that, and it's very interesting how the, Protestant church after the Reformation is still very much uh, influenced by Roman Catholic doctrine when it comes to atonement because this substitutionary, uh, substitutional penal atonement is actually still a widely held Catholic idea. But it's also the idea that is so widely held most common uh, among Western Christians, which I find utterly amazing. Okay, so this was brought in, um, and this was the one I said that most, especially conservative Christians, hold. Um, so this was after the Reformation, and um, a guy called John Calvin um, further developed the satisfaction theme. Isn't it lovely when somebody develops something that's already bad? <laughs> you know, I mean, how bad do we want it to be? But basically, it was, it moved on from just the satisfying of God's honour to actually the demands of divine justice. So can you see how it's very subtle, but we've moved on from just repaying God's honour because humanity failed to honour God the way it should be honoured because the slight was so bad. Sorry. To God needing justice for what had happened, which then brings the punishment aspect in and it came in big and hard and it has really dominated um, just the whole thing because even... um, the way that the, the criminal justice system is done, uh, the way we, we rear our children, it's all about reward and punishment rather than any sort of gracious um, restorative justice. And I want to make the difference between retributive justice and restoration. If you go back to what we were talking about at the beginning, um, 
what is missing from those is this type of punishment. Even though we had the issue of, okay, the devil got paid here, God got paid there. The, the issue of punishment wasn't as, as um, foremost as it is now. So the, the thing has developed getting more and more into the whole thing of justice and about divine justice, not only being satisfied with replacing the honour that's been lost, but somebody needs to get it, basically, uh, and that's it. So Christ's death was not repaying God's, God any lost honour, but rather paying the penalty of death that had always been the consequence of sin for breaking God's moral law. So we, we end up then having this whole thing that, I don't know, I mean, it just becomes huge, doesn't it? But there's another little bit that's added um, that this is not for everybody. <laughs> so we've gone for things being for, that, for everybody in the beginning. This is now limited because it's only paid... Uh, for those who have already been chosen before the foundation of the earth. So it wasn't something that God did for everybody. It's only if you're chosen. And um, I, I mentioned this a, a few months ago. Um, there was a little clipping that says, Daddy, you know, has God decided that I'm going to be burning hell for eternity? And the father says to the sons, maybe son, maybe son. You know, and you think, ah! You know, but that is... This coming out at its worst, that there is this idea that some are chosen, some are not. So when the Bible talks about whoever, whosoever, or, or you know, that all might be reconciled to God, it's like, no, it's only those who have been chosen. Now, this penalty uh, would satisfy, satisfy God's wrath against sin, sinful man and then change his mind about humanity because of Christ. So we have to have this in order for God to think different about us. Now, I know we've talked about this before. This has come up a lot uh, in, in, in ministry. So basically, we get to the point then where in the 1500s, we've come to a point where God can only show us grace if Christ is punished, justice is satisfied, and God's wrath is appeased. Restitution is made by punishment. Guilty sinners can only become righteous if it's punished out of them, basically. So you still have the issue that, same with the satisfaction theory, that there are things that you still must do to make amends, even though Christ has supposedly already done it. Do you get me? Okay. So, the last sentence. God can only show us grace if Christ is punished, if justice is satisfied, that's God's moral law, and God's wrath at the error, you know, the, the, the wrongdoing, is appeased. So that's where we got to. Now you can see why that can be a real problem, because it means that y you can have this idea that, you know, and I, we've mentioned this before, um, I'm allowed to hate who I believe God hates. So, you know, it really creates this, you know, if they haven't been chosen, if they're not in, well, I can, you know, which it, it brings a, an awful lot of, of, of issues. Now, let me just say this. I've got to finish. Um, the problems with that is that it separates the father from the son because basically it's saying one is just, the other is loving and compassionate. 
Um, and then the, the phrase that we, we, we mention quite often is this, that this theory then suggests that, we, that Jesus saves us from God. And, you know, we've, we've not sat well. Just like um, Anselm didn't like the idea of paying anything to the devil, which I thought, think he had a, a good reason to feel um, a, a bit uncomfortable about that. We can feel uncomfortable about the, any suggestion that Jesus saves us from God. Um, there's also the issue that God needs punishment to forgive because I don't believe that at all. Because even in, in the scriptures, you've got the, the, the wonderful story of um, the guy who was put through the roof, you know, the, the, the crippled man. And um, he, he says to him, you know, your sins, are, your sins are forgiven you. Well, if it's the fact that, that God needed blood of Jesus to forgive, well, he couldn't have done that, could he? So we've got the whole issue of forgiveness happening before Jesus died on the cross um, so we know that Jesus has done something, and I'm, I'm going to leave that for Anth in, in a while, but we know that he, he, he didn't need what happened to Jesus to forgive people because he was already, already doing that. So um, the other thing is that it suggests that God wants to be merciful, but justice demands punishment to appease God's anger. And like I said, there's a higher mechanism above God, which is the law that somehow God is responsible to uphold and make sure that we pay for breaking it. So um, um, the other point is, which is quite interesting, um, sometimes to ask questions like, even for God to punish Christ on our behalf, in our day and age now, we would say that that wasn't very just. Um, Maybe back then it was different. But we would say now, if somebody is guilty, they should pay for their own. Now, we, we understand that it's a wonderful, and we can get very romantic, can't we, about these ideas that somebody stands in somebody's place, and isn't that absolutely great, and it's wonderful, how kind. But in fact, it's not just. It isn't just. And if we're saying that God is just, then to actually put that into the framework to say that's how he operates then in some respects he's untrustworthy because how can, I, how can I then expect him to be just when it comes to issues concerning my life? Because what happens if he decides to put me in somebody's place? <laughs> well, I'm just keeping it simple, but what happens if he does that? Could I, am I going to say, well, I know you're just, therefore that's all right. Or am I going to say, well, actually, that's not just. Anyway, that's something for you to, to think about. Um, Finishing. Um, uh, how do I finish this? Um, words like substitution, that's up there, uh, or representational, uh, satisfaction, are words that you don't find in the Bible. So these theories that have been made and given incredible titles, they don't actually have... Uh, any basis. Now, after saying that, I'm not trying to say that they're not worth using because what they mean, they have a wonderful meaning. But they usually attempt to try and um, try to describe what Paul, in his teachings, talked about when he used words like for, with, and in. Now, they're incredible words. So, in Christ with him and for us. 
they're things that really encompass those sort of words, but it can be, become... It's amazing how once you start to study it, it can become something that's become... Um, uh, distorted, is that, is that the word to use? Because it's taken to, to, to the wrong... Um, well, it goes to a wrong uh, trajectory. For instance, let me just give you one more example. The word sacrifice... Is, um, and I mean, I've struggled with this one for a long time because, again, it was a, a word that I was brought up with. Um, and often we see sacrifice as meaning a God appeaser. If you think about it, just think sacrifice. Something that happens killed to appease the gods, a God appeaser. When actually, that's not how it was seen even in um, the the the, the uh, Old Testament particularly, and I haven't time to go into all of that, but I just want to give you another angle on sacrifice, which has helped me a lot. You know the story in um, Kings where um, the, uh, the, the, the two women go to uh, Solomon, the wise one, uh, went to Solomon and they were arguing about who the child belongs to. And... Um, it's really interesting that you get a beautiful idea of what sacrifice, what real sacrifice is in that. One of them says, the one who wasn't the mother, when the uh, king says, cut it in half, the mother who wasn't the mother says, yes, good idea, let's do it. Sacrifice the child, right? But the real mother says, no, give the child to her. Why? Because she wanted it to live. So where was the sacrifice? It was with the real mother who was willing to say, I will sacrifice my desire to keep the child in order that the child might live. Now, when you look at sacrifice like that, it doesn't have all the horror that goes with it. It still has the cost, but it doesn't have the same... um, Maybe's distorted view that we've we've tended to look because it's yeah that's right it's restorative not purative it's not about um, punishing it's about restoring so even words like sacrifice over the generations have been given a, a, a twisted understanding which only ever means a god appeaser so we sacrifice in order to keep a god happy yeah rather than actually saying this sacrifice is in order that something might be restored and might live. It's nothing to do with appeasing something. All right, I think I'm done. I'll just see if there's anything I needed to do. I think that's it. I'm done. I'm sorry. Let's just stand up, get some blood round your back end and... I'll try not to be uh, too long. Thanks, Chris. Um, obviously, uh, that, that whole subject matter could fill a whole semester of um, university education on theology. So Chris has given you a, um, just a summary there. And please ask questions. You know, don't in six months say, I didn't know what atonement meant. Okay, got a tongue in your head. Um, so please feel free to ask questions because we'll have some more discussion as we go along. Um, because this is really to open up some thought patterns, because it is important. I, I do not agree with the 
conclusion I was raised with, which was penal substitutionary atonement. Um, that as in the legal system, Christ had to be punished because God's wrath had to be satisfied in order that he could forgive me and set me free. I don't believe that, okay? So, you can sit down. Don't look so shocked. Okay, in, in, in the words of uh, the pilot of Apollo 13, uh, we have a problem, Houston. In fact, we have several problems, Houston. Um, and we won't get a chance to talk about a lot of them, but out of what Chris has said, I'm going to show you some of the problems. First of all, um, these theories began to emerge, really, um, in the second century, so a hundred and something. Okay, so we're already somewhat removed from, from um, the life of Christ when you think that Paul probably wrote Romans in 56, 57 AD. We're now removed. So these are called the church fathers, the the patriarchs, and and the the early theories are called patristic, okay, for that reason. Now, here's my problem. Um, The church went two ways. It went east and it went west, okay? Uh, It went east um, going as far as China, okay? And, of course, it went west coming as far as Europe. Now, here's the problem. The patristic view, the patriarch's view, the theology that went east was very much based on the moral, behavioral repairing. So the monastic situation came from a very eastern mindset. You lock yourself in a monastery. One guy went to Syria and sat sat for 47 years on top of a pillar. It's like, how dumb is that? I mean, it's brilliant, but like, how stupid Um, You know, how does that prove anything? But as it went east, it's interesting that the theory was we morally follow the example of Christ and become morally better until we become as God. Now, think what the major eastern religions have at their root. Hinduism, Buddhism. You better your behavior and you become as God, whether they call it reincarnation or whatever. Ha, huh, fascinating. So, so we've got to recognize as the gospel went east, as Christianity went east, it looks awfully like the dominant thoughts of Eastern religion. Looks nothing like the radical Christ. As it went west, guess what happened to the one that went west? We finally come all the way to penal substitutionary atonement, which looks awfully like Western models, Greek models of gods. The gods are angry, the gods must be appeased. Well, Jesus is the appeaser of an angry god. So, so really, Christianity looks like Western religion when it goes west, and it looks like Eastern religion when it goes east. That bothers me. It bothers me because then God is being placed through the, uh, or God is being seen through a lens of existing concepts of what God is like, what gods do, how gods behave. Now, it bothers me because Jesus was a radical. He was the ungodlike God. He was the unmessiah-like Messiah. And so here's the problem. When you look at these theories, there is no explanation of what Jesus' death would accomplish from Jesus in the Gospels. Think about that. Jesus never explained in the Gospels what his death would accomplish. It's afterwards that we begin to develop explanations of what we think his death would accomplish. Now, there's also the issue that many things didn't need explaining to a Jewish audience. 
Now, we, we have to contextualize this and put it in its culture. So, John chapter 1 says, when John saw Jesus coming, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Needs no explanation in Jewish culture. So, if we're Jews in Jesus' day, listening to his message, we don't need explanation about Lamb of God. We already know this relates to what was to the Jews the the foundational story of their existence, which was the exodus from Egypt. So, they're thinking, ah, Egypt, the blood... We came out of Egypt 430 years in bondage and captivity. It marked the time of deliverance and freedom and liberation. Okay, But you see, the major message of Jesus and the major message of the Gospels is actually, and even when you're going to the other writings in the New Testament, is not so much the death of Jesus as it is the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, So let me read you something, Matthew 16, 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, that he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. There's the key. Jesus' message, raised to life. Resurrection is the real message of the gospel, not death. But the problem is, within every other expression of religion, dying yourself or something dying is the focus. In this message, resurrection and something living is the focus. So, let me read you just three more little scriptures. Luke twenty-two twenty, half the verse. After supper, he took the cup, this is the last supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now, here's one of the other problems from Houston, Okay. How come when covenant is so important in the life and existence of Israel, in Israel's relationship to God, the Mosaic covenant, more importantly the Abrahamic covenant, and that Jesus says as he's dying, this cup is the new covenant, how come there's no mention whatsoever in all the patristic theories and the Latin theories of covenant? Seems to me we missed the point, okay? So it's another problem. Because Jesus ticks the cup and says, this covenant, this is the covenant in my blood. So, blood, in Jesus' words, is connected to covenant. In these theories, blood is never connected to covenant, okay? It's always connected to punishment or it's connected to cleansing okay so they've got the only side they've got is blood is for cleansing in order for you to be cleansed blood has to be shed that was never the major point even of all the old testament scriptures the major point of the old testament scriptures was that where there is no blood there is no covenant where there is no covenant there isn't an established promise but we are the children of a promise Therefore, I propose to you that the blood of Jesus was more to do with covenant than it was with cleansing. Now, cleansing may occur in the process, but if you make cleansing the point, you then have to start asking the questions that might lead you down the track of all this stuff that, well, it must be God needed to be satisfied or the devil needed to be paid or to whom and what and how much and whatever. Okay, so this makes sense. So... um, so, let me, Matthew 26, 28. Uh, this is my blood of the covenant, 
Right? Here it is again. This is Jesus talking. So, so this, is not, this is not the early church fathers, Gregory, Anselm, all these, you know, Cyril. I love, I love a, a, a bishop called Cyril. It doesn't sound right, does it? I mean, it just doesn't. Not in any generation. Bishop Cyril. Um, none of them mention this. This is Jesus, okay? So, so I want to take my theory, my atonement theory. Atonement means to cover or set free or... This is, the, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So forgiveness occurs, but the focus is on the blood, is the blood of covenant, okay? Hebrews 13 verse 20. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, and then he goes on to talk. So we've got covenant and resurrection. So blood for covenant and resurrection. Now, in Romans chapter 5, it says that we are reconciled by his death, but we are saved through his life. So the question is then, what are we reconciled with through his death? I believe we're reconciled with the covenant that God has made, and we are saved through his life. So because he rose again, he ever lives so that that covenant can be applied to us. Now, we're gonna, we haven't got time to do a lot on this, but I'm going to throw in some, some uh, little thoughts to you. So, so... The emphasis, if you really read the scripture through the proper lens, is on life and resurrection. Jesus said, I am, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. In him was life, that life was the light of men. It's all about life, okay? And resurrection. So, we could talk about Paul's approach. Paul, you've got to bear in mind, he's trying to take this stuff that he understands as a Jew... And he's trying to help Gentiles, non-Jews, to understand what has not been explained in the Gospels because it didn't need explaining in the Gospels because they all all understood the terminologies and the pictures. Do you see what I'm saying? So, So Paul is... Now the problem is if you don't understand that, you then take hold of Paul and you think Paul's teaching something else. And so somehow we've lost Jesus' emphasis in what they think is Paul's message. But Paul's message is only trying to put into terms to be understood by non-Jews what the Jews understood that Jesus never had to explain. So Jesus needs no explanation for what his death would accomplish. Isn't that fascinating, that one thing alone? So... So... um, Here's here's a statement. Death doesn't save anybody. Resurrection does. Okay? So this is important. So I could talk about the Exodus model. I haven't got time. Uh, Chris mentioned a bit about Christ dying. It was not Christ dying by himself that has the effect. It's the participation process. It's that we died with him. So everything that we were died with him... So we don't owe anything to anybody because we were part of him who owed nothing to anybody. Now, again, I'm I'm skipping fast on this um, because of time. Because I wanted to bring you to this. Where does forgiveness come into all of this? Okay. Because we think, well, it's obvious. Um, There was a debt of sin. Christ paid the debt of sin. Um, And so we sing it. The wrath of God was satisfied, right? 
right? We don't sing that anymore because we struggle with that line. The wrath of God was satisfied. So now God could forgive humanity. Okay, so here's the deal. When the wonderful day comes, Jenny, that your mortgage is paid, <laughs> will, will the building society or bank write to you and say, Jenny, we need to let you know we have forgiven you your mortgage. Is that what will happen? Why not? Because she doesn't need to be forgiven a mortgage. She's paid it. So if there was a debt owing to God, and the debt is paid, right, there is no forgiveness. Now, now if we came and said, Jenny, you haven't paid, you can't pay, it'll never be paid, but you're forgiven anyway, that's different. So we talk about the forgiveness of God, but if the forgiveness of God only comes because the debt that we hold has been paid, God has forgiven us nothing. We're not forgiven. So the idea that a debt was paid to God or a debt was paid to the devil and we were forgiven does not make any sense. So forgiveness has to come regardless of and in spite of the payment of any debt. Okay? Therefore it poses a question, was there a debt actually owing to anybody that needed to be paid? What that, was that really the purpose of Christ's sacrifice or was it something else? Okay? Are we forgiven because of that or were we forgiven anyway? Because forgiveness is forgiveness. I forgive you in the state you are. I forgive you in spite of what is happening. I forgive you while the debt that might be there still exists. So we have to look at this. Can you see through a very different lens? Even in the context of forgiveness. He has forgiven us all our sins. But not because the debt was paid. He's forgiven us all our sins because you forgive somebody when they're still in that. And you say nothing's required you forgiven. Right? Now I think this makes the gospel even greater. So, let's talk a bit more so you don't look as confused as you're looking right now. So, the question is then, blood for cleansing or blood for covenant? Now, I love the book of Hebrews. It's my favorite book because Hebrews actually links these two worlds of Jewish thought and, and, and the revelation of the new covenant. And Hebrews becomes the one that, that is dominated by, by the declaration of of, of the new covenant, from repeating in chapter 7 the words of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, the time is coming, declares the Lord, I'll make a new covenant with my people. And so Hebrews keeps going on again, talking about it's the blood, the blood of the covenant. So, so the issue is also that, that, that um, it, it talks about it being an everlasting covenant, okay, so somehow what was happening at the cross in the blood of Jesus was the establishing of an everlasting covenant. An everlasting covenant because Jesus' blood is the God's summing up of history, the recapitulation, to use Chris's word, the final and last word on the covenant between God and man. So what I propose to you is that the blood was not to appease God, but to enact his covenant. Now, you have to start thinking contextually in this. In the culture that um, existed in ancient times and came through in different ways to modern times, but in ancient times, a covenant which was a, a binding promise, 
a binding, if you like, legal agreement, but it was more than that. It was a relational agreement that, that would always be made, and blood was used not to pay the debt of the person entering the covenant. Blood was used to show that this covenant was being made with the life of something, with the life of an animal, okay? So the animal was sacrificed, but not in the sense we have to do this to appease the gods, but it was sacrificed in the sense of there will be an inconveniencing here, but for the simple reason that we have to show that, that our lives are locked into this, this covenant, the promise that we are making together, our lives are locked into this. So because Jesus was the eternal son of God, what happened was he made an eternal covenant, a covenant that will last forever and never be broken. So if we go back to the little best illustrative story in in Genesis chapter 15 where, where God wants to make covenant with Abraham. So remember, God's having to speak to us through personalities, in cultures, by stories, to get us to try and understand. Now, if you lived back then, it's just like when John said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You're like, woof, that's pretty wild. You know, back then, the whole idea of the covenant would illustrate to you. So I've told you this before. Abraham had to take a heifer, um, a a, a goat, uh, a a lamb, and two birds, and uh, he had to divide the carcasses. Into That was the process. It was bloody. It was awful. But what it meant to them was that through death, through blood, a covenant was being made. Nobody was being, nobody was being paid. Nothing was being set right in the context of a debt owing. What was happening was something was being created. That something was a, a covenant between the two parties that forever knitted us together so that Everything I am and have is yours and everything you are and have is mine. Now, here's the issue. When God spoke to Abraham, God puts Abraham to sleep. While Abraham's asleep, God walks through the carcasses in the blood. Abraham wakes up. God's made the covenant. But God's made the covenant not with Abraham but with himself on Abraham's behalf. So that Abraham could never break this covenant because he never made this covenant. The covenant was made on his behalf. And that that covenant now was God promising himself that he would never betray the the promises of the covenant that were made. So as you read through chapter 15 in Genesis, it says, The covenant I made with you. The covenant that I made with you. God made a covenant with Abraham, but the reality was he made a covenant with himself, of which Abraham was the beneficiary. So when we come to the cross, and we have the sacrifice of Jesus, and we have the blood, and we have this amazing statement that says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, right? Not imputing their sins to them, reconciling bringing the world back to himself. We have the same model because we have Jesus the God-man, right? God incarnate is important, the God-man. We have him as a son of Adam, right? Which is in the Bible before it was ever in, in, in uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe or the Narnia Tales, okay? He became a son of Adam. He became part of Adam's race 
so that in the problems of Adam's race, he could redeem Adam's race, buy it back from what it was, to make it what it should be. So that's where redemption comes in. We're buying back what it sh- this thing to what it should have been. But on the cross, what Jesus was doing, he wasn't paying God for the reasons that Chris said the problems with those. He certainly wasn't paying the devil because the devil had no ownership of us. What he was doing in that moment was establishing a covenant. Now, within that covenant, there was cleansing. Within that covenant, the experience of forgiveness. Within that covenant, there was reconciliation, okay, of relationship to God. But the actual event itself was such that he was making a covenant that then became everlasting because he rose from the dead, right? So his death made the covenant, his resurrection gave it an everlasting context. So God in Christ reconciling us to himself. So we didn't have to die, but it wasn't even, and I know there are scriptures on all of this that we can wrestle with, it wasn't even Jesus dying in my place, which you and I were all taught. It was Jesus dying as the son of Adam... It was like God walking through the carcasses. It was God saying, you can't make this covenant with me because you'll just break it. So I'll make this covenant with myself and I will bring you into that covenant. So we were crucified with Christ. We died with him. We became like him in his death. It tells us in Romans, so if we were like him in his death, we shall also be like him in his resurrection. Why? Because he was part of Adam's race, we're part of Adam's race, and he said this blood is the blood of the covenant. Now Jesus said, here's how Jesus explained his blood, this blood is the blood of the new covenant, right? Which I am making for the Forgiveness of sins, so you'll experience the forgiveness, but the forgiveness was already given, but the blood is the blood of the covenant. So, my belief is that the blood of Jesus was not to appease God, it was to enact his covenant. That God was making the covenant with himself, that there is no need for a death for forgiveness, which is what we were taught. To forgive Chris, I don't need somebody to die. For her to forgive me, we don't need somebody to die. There is no need for a death for forgiveness. But there is a need for a death to enact covenant. See, that was always the way. Now, it's not so good for the animal, like people often say. Isn't nature wonderful? Go and interview a wildebeest. When it's being hunted by a pack of lions. Not so wonderful then, is it? So yes, it was horrific. Yes, it was horrible. But the point is, God was so serious about an everlasting covenant that it says he made his covenant in blood. That was the understood way. Okay, do you understand? So the cross is about covenant, not a covering for us. Okay? So, so I don't believe there's a need for a death for forgiveness. I think it's just necessary for covenant. And we have been invited into that, into that covenant. So, here's here's where then, let's just clarify that. Everyone is forgiven doesn't mean that everyone is in fellowship with God. But I do believe everybody is forgiven by God. Now, 
One of the terms that can be used on that in the development of Christian doctrine is the term universalism, which means that everybody's going to be saved and go to heaven regardless, is a summary of that. Um, I'm not a universalist. I'm pretty, pretty near to one. I'm more near to that than anything else. But I have another Houston we have a problem. Okay, When you look at what was declared heresy in the early church fathers and with the various councils of Nicaea, etc., etc., Chalcedon, all those things, all the things that were declared heresy were the things that would remove power from the bishops and take away their leverage. So it was not in their interest to preach a message where everybody was accepted and everybody was saved because then everybody says, well, why do we need the bishops? Why do we need you to preach to us? And the leverage that they had from which these theories come, that you are so wicked and sinful and there has to be a way for God to be paid and then you have to morally keep that up in order for it to be right. That's the leverage, you see, the leverage, the leverage. You need us, you're guilty. so, So if you look at what was declared heresy, very often it was all the things that took away the leverage and reduced the power. You go look at it in history. Which makes me think that maybe some of the things that they said were heresy were actually more the truth than the things they were saying were the truth. Okay, let's see if there's any other things I need to say to you. Um, we, we talked a long time ago about in the, gos- in, in the Bible there are two Gospels. Uh, so throughout the Bible you keep reading, you know, and there were two sons, Okay. Uh, and there were two women, and there's always two of everything, you know, so, so Cain and Abel, and then as you go through, um, 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 Jacob and Esau, and, and, and uh, Hagar and, and Sarah, uh, Ishmael and Isaac, and then you come to the Gospels, you know, and you get, you get two of this and two of that and two of the other. Why? Because it, it's showing that there's always going to be a contrast, that there is, there is a, a true and a not so true. And as you follow the track of, of the Christian gospel, you find that there are, there are definitely two, two gospels that emerge depending on how you begin the story. One is the gospel of unrighteousness, which means the whole focus is on the unrighteousness of humanity. The other is the gospel of righteousness, which has a focus on the righteousness that is given, not righteousness that is earned. Now, most of us, through these theories, have ended up Um, being swallowed into what is a gospel of unrighteousness. You're unrighteous. There has to be a sacrifice for the unrighteous. You remain unrighteous. And if it weren't for the grace of God, you're nothing. The gospel of righteousness says that from the beginning of time, a righteousness from God is revealed, which is by faith from first to last. And if you think, well, that's the later thing. No, David said, blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, whose iniquities the Lord will never count against him. So David had a revelation of the gospel of righteousness because he was a murderer, he was an adulterer, he was a rubbish father and made some terrible decisions but was a man after God's own heart. Well, if you follow the theory of unrighteousness, David could never be anything of that that he became 
because he would be under condemnation and would need Jesus' blood to set him free from that thing. But if the blood was a blood of covenant, and that covenant reaches through all ages, and it touches David, and David is forgiven, right? Which doesn't need the debt to be paid for forgiveness. David is forgiven, and he receives that forgiveness. Then David is able to rejoice in a righteousness given rather than a righteousness earned. See? No righteousness given in those theories. So, 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 when we come through righteousness, and incidentally, righteousness and justice are the same word. So, God's righteousness is God's justice. Now, you take that, put that through the long lens. You say, God's righteousness is God's justice. You're not righteous, therefore, you have to be punished. So, we need a penal system to note down your crimes and what the penalty would be, and then we need to pay that price. See? But if you go the other way and say that if righteous and justice are the same word, then God's imputed righteousness is God's method of justice. So God's justice says, you can't make a covenant with me, you'd never keep it, so I give you righteousness as a gift. Why can I give you righteousness as a gift? Because you're forgiven but I haven't done anything to put right what I did. If you did something to put right what you did, I wouldn't be forgiving you, would I? Do you understand what I'm saying? So even if Jesus puts right what we did, God wouldn't be forgiving us. He'd be saying, you've earned this through Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying? So you have to wrestle with this to understand that actually, the, what I think is the more accurate expression of the sacrifice of Jesus and the blood is that blood is necessary for covenant. And what was happening on the cross was covenant. And resurrection is the focus because resurrection makes it everlasting. So we have an everlasting covenant through the blood of Jesus with, the, with God who has now become our Father so that our restoration comes and, and our, uh, the restoration of all things and the, and the reconciling of us to God comes through that method. So, so give me give me just another five minutes, just just to say this. That I said that um, um, everyone is forgiven doesn't mean everyone is in fellowship. So I believe the issue of of of, of the spirit of God now is working to bring us into fellowship with God, to bring redeemed humanity into fellowship with God. Now, now that's the model, really, from the beginning. Um, if you start with disobedience rather than disassociation, you have a different model. So if you say the problem with Eve and Adam was disobedience, that gives you a different model that brings you into these other theories. If you say that the start was disassociation, that takes you down a different line. Now let me, in 30 seconds, explain that. Um, what Eve did in the garden, however you interpret when that was and, and what that was and the reality of it, was decide that she would define her own righteousness rather than letting God define her righteousness. So the temptation was, if you eat from the tree, you'll become as God. And you'll know the difference between good and evil. And Eve said, I'll have some of that. Which means Eve was saying, I would rather define my righteousness than let God define it. So she disassociated with the imputed righteousness of God to associate with her own endeavors to become righteous. 
So it actually wasn't that disobedience was the problem, it was disassociation. Now I think our problem is not when we disobey, I think our problem is when we disassociate with that righteousness revealed, with the covenant made on our behalf, with the gift that God has given us. So, so everything God did from Eve on was to bring back into fellowship. So the reason I wanted to say this before we leave is because I think this is an important point. Adam. Was Adam forgiven? If Adam wasn't forgiven, where is he? If, if you believe in a literal hell, and, and again, isn't it interesting that the most prolific use of eternal and everlasting in church terminology is re- regarding to hell. Everlasting fire, everlasting punishment. When actually the greatest use of everlasting in Scripture is about everlasting life. It's about an everlasting covenant. We have to start using that terminology for something more hopeful. More positive, more helpful. So, so Adam, was Adam forgiven? If he was forgiven, when was he forgiven? And how was he forgiven? And why was he forgiven? See, you can't answer that question because there's nowhere in Genesis that says an Adam was forgiven for what he did. Now the best you can give me is God made coats of skins. Okay, well we've gone through that. Who were the coats of skins for? God or Adam? Whose shame were the coats of skins covering? God's shame or Adam's shame? So therefore, everything that was done was not for God's benefit. It was only for man's benefit. And it was not because God was out of sorts with man and therefore needed something's got to die because I'm so flipping angry that I've got to kill something because of your sin. No, God was saying to Adam, listen, there's going to be covenant here and covenant is made with blood. And the covenant is this, I'll cover you. It's okay. I've got you covered. Okay? How do you know covenant's been made with blood? I've got you covered. It wasn't the animal paying for what Adam did. It was the animal being the means by which God could say, I've got you covered, kid. You're okay. It's covenant, see? So, so, so the deal is that Adam was never in a place of unforgiveness. You cannot show me One single thing in the Bible to show that Adam was ever in a place of unforgiveness. Only in a place of broken fellowship. But never in a place of unforgiveness. Therefore, if we get this wrong in the beginning, we think the problem is that Adam was unforgiven and we have to find a way to put this right. Rather than saying Adam's fellowship was broken, so everything that happens now is to restore that fellowship. How do you restore that fellowship? You bring people into covenant, because covenant's about fellowship. What do you have to do for covenant? Blood is the most powerful way to show covenant, because blood says we're ending the old and we're beginning the new, and resurrection says this will last forever. So I propose to you that the, that the gospel's version of atonement theory is the new covenant and that the real message within the New Testament writings is the new covenant 
And that it's only because we have a certain lens distorted from the beginning that makes us read then into it things that actually relate, if you're from the East, more to Eastern religions, and if you're from the West, more to Western religions. So we shape a belief system that actually is just a reflection of what already was, which was never the miracle, never the grace, never the goodness of God, never the ungodlike God, never the unmessiah-like Messiah. And then we start messing with stuff. For example, and this is my last thing. For example, in John 5, 24 through 30. Um, there's, there's a verse here in 24. I tell you the truth, Jesus says. Whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. You notice the word life keeps coming in. And will not be condemned is what the NIV, the New International Version, says in the New King James. He's crossed from death to life. Then he goes, don't be amazed at this, verse 28, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out, there's life again. Those who have done good will rise to live. This is the NIV. Those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. Now, let me read you the, the New American Standard because it helps me to explain this. The New American Standard, the same verses. Truly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come unto judgment, but has passed out of death to life. Okay, so is it condemned or is it judgment? Verse 28, don't marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth and those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Now, You say, well, isn't it the same thing? No, judgment and condemnation are not the same thing. I can bring Dave to judgment and say, right, Dave, there's a judgment here. Here's the judgment. I made a covenant way back when, and I forgave you. You didn't have to have that forgiveness paid for because forgiveness is freely given. What was paid for was the eternal nature of the covenant. So I'm making a judgment on you. So I can still judge him, But that's different to saying, I condemn him. If I condemn him, I'm not judging him. Now, that's similar to the law at the moment. If, for example, a guy is accused by anybody of rape or somebody comes and said they were molested as a child 47 years ago and whatever. And it may be true and it's abhorrent and I'm not excusing that. However, isn't it terrible when someone is presumed guilty before they have been proved guilty? So Cliff Richard is presumed guilty of touching two boys at a concert, even though he's innocent. So the system should be you're innocent to proven guilty, but that system says you're guilty unless you're proved innocent. Most of these theories that Chris has mentioned says you're guilty unless you're proved innocent. You understand? The blood of covenant says that you're innocent even though you are guilty. It says you'll always be innocent because a righteousness has been given. Because you've always been forgiven. Which leaves you in a pure state of what the Bible calls justification. You have been justified by his blood. Justified, set right. So the issue is here, what I'm trying to show you, is that even scripture has been messed with because of these theories. That we read that and think, oh, well, those who've done evil will rise to be condemned. No, those who've done evil will rise to be judged, which is fair. But then the judge who is just 
whose justice is righteousness, is not going to judge them with condemnation, is he? Come on, this, this, is, this is pretty much to me common sense, okay? Unless, unless you believe in substitutionary penal atonement. The word translated condemned and judgment is the Greek word crisis, okay? Now, now just like with Christus victor, okay, meaning Christ the victor, right? The Greek word crisis, what do you think it means? Flipping crisis is what we get from that, okay? Judgment is a crisis. It's not condemnation. So yeah, there are times where we might find ourselves in a crisis, but because it's an eternal covenant, it doesn't mean the same as what it would have meant when we take all these other theories on. So I propose to you, that's the model of the true gospel. I propose to you, that's the message of Jesus. I propose to you, Jesus didn't have to explain his death too much because it was pretty straightforward that they understood those deaths in the context of covenant. And when he said, I've come to make a new covenant, they jolly well knew exactly what he meant. So therefore, the association of the cross was not with the appeasement of an angry God. It wasn't even with the cleansing of sin, although that's part of it. But it was God saying, this is the moment of covenant. This blood is necessary for covenant. This resurrection shows it's eternal. And you are invited, already forgiven, to participate in the wonder of this new covenant. That's not bad news, is it? That's good news. So we've given you a lot to think about there. Thanks for being patient. You've been absolutely uh, uh, tremendous. Uh, and uh, next week we'll spend a bit of time. So um, I would suggest if you've got questions, write them down so you remember. And if you want to submit questions to us for next week, uh, that's also fine. We'll wrestle with those because, as Chris said, there are many scriptures that would seem to support all of these individual theories. Okay, um, And we understand that, we know that, um, we accept that, um, so don't be afraid to say, yeah, but doesn't this say that? But, but we'll then look through this lens and maybe think, does, does it really mean that? Does it really say that in its context? Is that where we're heading? But I think this is a wonderful salvation. I think it's, I think it's amazing grace. And uh, I'm very grateful for where... Uh, God is bringing us to, but in terms of leverage and power, we would have to be then call heretics because uh, because there's not a lot of leverage and the upholding of our power over you in this. What it does, it releases you into the hands of the Father. But in the Spirit of Christ, that should be the greatest binding force that all of us have together, that we are one because of the love of the Father. We're one because we are part of the same covenant and therefore, like Jesus said, he's not ashamed to call us his brothers, okay? He got rid of the leverage. You're my brothers, okay? We're family. We're family. Can I say one last thing again, because this is important? Um, I noticed in many of the writings um, that I've read as well, this term being Christ-like keeps coming up. Now, I said to you the other week, because it's fascinating, that we're not told anywhere in the Bible to be Christ-like, which is fascinating. Like Chris said, there are words in those theories that are not in the Bible. What we are told to be is sun-like, which is a very different thing. So even in Christ-likeness, we can start to lean again towards, towards our behavior and, and, and our accreditation because we're Christ-like, but, but God's made us sun-like. He's made us in the image of his son.
just like Jesus, which is a very different thing. So relationship is always what binds us together. We are brothers and sisters together with Jesus in the same covenant. We died with him, okay? We were raised with him and we inherit with him. That's our inheritance and we're part of that. So chew it over and think and then hopefully we'll have some good discussion. But you are blessed and dismissed. Amen. Thanks for listening. You might not be aware that The Rock is funded completely through donations from people like yourself. So if you feel like you're part of our community, it would be great if you could make a contribution by visiting our website at www.rockofyork.co.uk and just click on the donate button for more information. Thanks again. Thanks again.